1 Peter 3, verse 8 to 22. <clears throat> Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who loved life and sees good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defence to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when we defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed." For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, whom formerly were disobedient, and once David and once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which... A few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been, been made subject to him. Amen. That is the word of God. Let's just come in prayer before we have the sermon. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The sermon I want to preach on this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. But first I'll just give a little bit of historical background. This letter is written by the Apostle Peter and he tells the church that he is an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. That's in chapter 5, verse 1. The letter was probably written from Rome about 62 AD during the reign of Nero. The recipients of 1 Peter were mainly Jewish and Gentile Christians near modern-day Turkey. These provinces have been impacted by the Greco-Roman culture and were firmly under Roman control. Peter's primary message is to trust the Lord, live obediently no matter what your circumstances and keep your hope fixed on God's ultimate purpose, a promise of deliverance. Suffering is but to be expected, but it is temporary and yields blessings for those who remain steadfast. Peter encourages his readers to endure suffering and persecution by giving themselves entirely to God. They are to remain faithful in times of distress, knowing that God will vindicate them and they will enjoy the salvation that the Lord has promised. 
The death and resurrection of Christ stands as the great example for the lives of believers. Just as Christ suffered and then entered into glory, so too his followers will suffer and be exalted. Today in Australia, the Bible-believing church is under attack. As a recent book has said, we are now considered the bad guys. In our own denomination, we have several pulpit vacancies and many congregations have reduced numbers. Other Bible-believing churches are also facing a similar trial. The outspoken bitterness against Christianity in particular has been outstanding. Through the ability of instant information, we are seeing books published, blogs written, social media giving opinion, and we are constantly bombarded with the latest objections and argument against Christianity. The accusations against Christians today are many. We are seen as anti-social, narrow-minded. We don't support the new agenda quality push. We don't support homosexual marriage, against assisted suicide. We oppose abortion, the legalised and government sanctions of killing unborn babies. We are branded as puritanical, judgmental, unloving, intolerant. We are accused of being chauvinistic, haters of women, abusers of children, hypocrites and institutionalised racism and on and on we could go. These objections require the believer to give an answer for what we believe. But today I don't want to discourage us, I want to encourage us. As Christians we are in a battle, not so much with those around us, but with the devil, Satan. He is our accuser. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So all God's people are in this battle with the devil. Peter, Peter reinforces the need for Christ's people to be alert. Satan is our main adversary. Sometimes we can be overwhelmed by the attacks of the devil. He doesn't have free reign over us, though. Ultimately, God is sovereign over all suffering. But we must also remember that we are to support and encourage each other in the church against the growing tirade of critiques, objections and also challenges. But we need to put all these accusations and trials into perspective. There's many verses in the Bible that tells us the cost of being Jesus' follower. In 1 John 15, 18... If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Also in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Um, there's also 1 Peter 4.12-14, which you can look up a bit later. In James 1 verse 2, it tells us that when we have trials, they are for the testing of our faith, and that testing produces steadfastness or the quality of being firm and unwavering in our faith and trust in Christ. We also need to remember Christ's command to the church, Matthew 28 and Mark 16, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That's a call to the church, but it's a call to every Christian. We are to tell people about the gospel by word of mouth and by our actions. Satan doesn't want us to do this. We must remember that everyone who doesn't love Christ is a dead person walking. They will remain that way unless they hear the gospel. 
and unless the Holy Spirit works in their hearts. The way they usually hear the gospel is by hearing preaching or listening to God's people tell them about the gospel. We, as God's people, through the mercy and grace of God, by the obedience and sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been given life. We are to be the light in the world. Today we're going to be looking at one of the classic apologetic texts, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ might be put to shame. Peter's epistle gave the early church and us today very useful advice on how to respond to many of the attitudes that are around. Christians, because they did not worship the Roman gods of the day, were seen as disturbers of the peace. They were a part of the problem, not a part of the cure for the social ills. They were slandered, falsely accused of all sorts of things that weren't true. The persecution they were going through at the time Peter wrote this letter was mainly financial and social, but worse is to come. So we'll look at our text now and and, um, help us negotiate our own response to the antagonistic unbelief, as well as some of the heart-searching questions we sometimes get from our friends who really want to know our faith. So I've got three points. Setting apart Christ as Lord in verse 15, answering for our hope, in verse 15, and suffering and living lives of holiness, in verse 16. So the first point, setting apart Christ as Lord. Peter is in the middle of a discussion about how to respond to unjust persecution. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He speaks about the blessing of those who suffer for righteousness' sake remembering that they were suffering for Christ and he has suffered much more than we ever will. And he calls them, calls them not to fear or to trouble. We could summarise what Peter is saying in verse 14 by saying, uh, let me show you the scriptural path to fighting fear. Here's how you do it. Set apart or remember Christ as Lord in our hearts. Don't fear man, fear God. How do you deal with a heart when you know that you will get mocked because you follow Jesus? How do you quieten your fears when you know that standing up for biblical principles with integrity at work, university or in your neighbourhood for the sake of Christ will result in social ostracism, economic loss or personal slander? Those who are suffering Peter's, uh, those were the sufferings Peter's first hearers were already facing. But more is coming. How do you stand firm for Jesus when you know it's going to cost you? It's an awareness that Jesus is Lord. I am his and he is mine. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And so what I say and where I go are no longer up to me. I am to be ruled by Christ, ruled by his word. And I will fight the fear of man in my heart by proclaiming to myself over and over again, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We are to preach Christ to ourselves. We are to set apart apart our heart, um, in our heart, Christ as Lord. We should remember 
I am his. I belong to my gracious saviour, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has redeemed me. To honour Christ, to acknowledge him as Lord and to honour him in our hearts and lives are all ways of worshipping Christ. This is what Peter is asking the persecuted believers to do. To set Christ above all else in their hearts, even higher than their own safety. To prepare ourselves well to defend our faith, we need to begin by fixing our heart in the right direction. Defending our faith is not first and foremost a case of being the smartest, a case of being able to answer every question. Wisdom begins with the fear of God. The call here is to become a better worshipper, to work on our relationship with God and make sure we know who our treasure is. If God is our treasure, we will want to glorify God in our life and trust him and trust in Christ as our saviour. Then the fear of man should not defeat us. We, when we are engaged in telling people about the gospel, we come face to face with arguments that for 2,000 years have deceived other sinners. We will become against part, uh, people who are smarter than ourselves. We will encounter all sorts of psychological pressure as they become belligerent or as they misrepresent us. We are going into a warfare with the devil who loves to lie and he will seek to rattle our faith. We must have God at the centre of our heart and mind. Peter begins with remembering who God is on purpose. Being persecuted for our faith will test us to the limits unless we know our God and are deeply rooted and satisfied in him. Our knowledge of God is not how we know other things. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals God to us. So we must continually ask for his guidance. The second point, answering for our hope. This brings us to the, second, uh, to the important point of giving our defence for our faith. Always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. With 2,000 years of challenges to the Christian faith behind us, with people's ears being filled with many arguments to refute Christianity, it's important to take God's word, prepare and apply it to our own lives. Many of us have done many years of training for our various vocations, either through university, a traineeship or an apprenticeship, to get the knowledge about our chosen field and employment. We have gone through and we continually go through exams to improve our knowledge and to keep our various competencies current. Our faith is the most important thing in our lives, but very few Christians go through the same process to prove and cement the knowledge of the word of God. We are to be prepared to give a defence for why the truth of the Bible is above every other option and belief system in the world today. We have many resources to help us answer the hard questions and prepare us to give a defence. Ligonier is, um, has a good subject matter to study and there's probably a lot of others that, that people would also mention. The best way to prepare yourself to defend your faith is by knowing your faith well. Sadly, many get caught up in the conflict of debate. They end up knowing what their opponents believe better than their own faith. It's possible to answer every question just by knowing your faith well. When questions like, how can a God of love send people to hell? Or how can God not elect everyone? Or why does God 
a God of love, allows suffering. It's our knowledge of God, his many attributes, that will set us up for answering these questions. The knowledge we have of God's love and that how it relates to his holiness and his justice. The love God has for his people that he sent his only son into a sinful world to die a cruel death on the cross, to be raised again so that his people are saved from the consequences of the sin and the wrath and the anger of God. The knowledge we have of God's justice and how it relates to mercy in election. How God is mysterious and cannot be fully known but has revealed enough that we can know he is a good and loving God. When it comes to the questions about the Trinity, the Incarnation or miracles, knowing the nature of who God is and the distinction between the Creator and his creation will equip us to handle many questions. We need to know our Bible. Many attacks on our faith come from people who don't know the Bible very well. Many who challenge uh, Christianity take the Bible out of context. If you learn to handle scripture well, you will be able to answer most questions. <clears throat> Let me encourage us by saying that doesn't, to, to be prepared it doesn't mean that we need to have a PhD in every area. If you know God in your Bible, you will be able to handle most problems. <clears throat> but notice, Peter anticipates that our hope will be questioned. The people he is writing to were suffering and he's calling them to endure suffering patiently without retaliation while continuing to do good. This is strange and confounding behaviour to the world. Before we were saved, our reasons and motivations were very different. Our sadnesses and gladness depended on very different things. The believer has eternal life and is guaranteed of heaven. Nothing can separate us from God's love. All suffering is, a pur is for a purpose. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ. We live with these realities in mind and we are able to be joyful in our suffering. When your joy when others, when, your joy when others are joyless, your endurance when others give up, your silence when others are complaining, your worship when others are cursing God, this is what will cause people to sit up and pay attention. The good news is this is not an extra burden. This is simply a call to live out the truth of the gospel. Let me highlight the text that talks about answering with gentleness and respect. What does this look like? How would you like others to talk to you? To be polite does not mean we are agreeing with them, but we must remain controlled and keep the conversation calm and civil. Unfortunately, we've seen too much unaccountable communication on social media and the internet an anonymous debating has led to people who don't know how to have face-to-face -face conversations with anyone. As Christians, we are not to resort to the cheap bullying tactics that many use online. <clears throat> now, third point. <clears throat> Suffering and living lives of holiness. <clears throat> In verse 8, Peter says, Finally. He has spent the previous chapters telling his readers about submission, submission to God in chapter 1, and then how to live in the world around us, having submission of citizens to governments in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, of servants to masters or employers in chapter 2, verse 18 to 25, wives to husbands and husbands to wives in chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, 
and Christians to each other in chapter 3, verses 11, uh, 8 to 12. After submission is fully understood, does Peter deal with the difficult area of suffering? Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. We are to have clean consciences. In other words, we must live lives that reflect Christ. Christians are often slandered. We must live our lives so that our good conduct will make them ashamed. William Barclay reminds us of a good definition of a Christian. A saint is someone who likes, whose life makes it easier to believe in God. Are we making it easier for the unbeliever to, to believe or are our sins or behaviour an obstacle to their path? Just as joy and hope is something God uses to draw the unbeliever to Christ, in the same way our holiness is a testimony to his reality. Our lives matter. The way we live, what we say, the way we act matters to God the Father. As we live our lives before him, our lives matter, the way we live, what we say and the way we act matters to God the Son so that we bring honour and glory to his name. Our lives matter, the way we live, what we say, the way we act matters to God the Holy Spirit so we do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And our lives matter, the things we say and do matter to those who don't love God even though they don't realise that they're spiritually dead. God may use us to bring them saving knowledge of him. <clears throat> so how do we prepare ourselves to defend our faith? According to Peter, by having a real, vibrant faith in God, preparing ourselves to answer questions by digging deeper into our hope, by persevering through trials and patience, through gentle and winsome speech and through good works. Verses 13 to 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter is thinking of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Some of his readers are already beginning to suffer for Christ, and he wants them to be prepared when more opposition comes. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. John Owen, the famous Puritan, once put it this way, There is more glory under the eye of God in all the monarchs of the earth. Oops, sorry, I missed that. There is more glory under the eye of God in the sighs, groans and mournings of poor souls filled with the love of Christ than in the, than in the thrones and diadems of all the monarchs of the earth. And then he quoted Martin Luther, I would rather fall with Christ than reign with Caesar. So that's what Peter's point is. Suffering with Christ is sweeter than riches without him. <clears throat> but there's more to do. He wants us to prepare for suffering. He does not want us to build high walls around us and stay out of reach to anyone who might conceivably be hostile to the gospel or to Christ. Peter doesn't expect Christians to retreat into holy hubbles with no non-Christian friends. And so first, he says, we need to get ready for what is coming. We need to fight the fear of man with a stronger, sweeter, purer, better fear of the Lord, setting apart Christ in our hearts as Lord. But then, he says, having done that, we need to open our mouths and speak up for Jesus. Looking at the, look at the second half of verse 15. 
Always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason for that hope that is in you. So be prepared. I want to briefly mention two aspects of being prepared. Firstly, be prepared or willing to make a defence. Don't be put off by those who may question or those who are opposers. <clears throat> Secondly, be prepared beforehand. Think about your faith. Remember the things that we read and know. How would you describe your faith to those who don't know any truths from the Bible or only have heard distortion and lies from other believers? As Sunday school teachers and crossroad leaders know, we have to be able to describe our faith often in simple terms and not fall back onto the sometimes complicated technical terms we have in our theology. We must think often about our faith and how we would describe it. That's what's often required when talking to unconverted people, giving simple answers that they can think about. It's like putting a stone in someone's shoe. When you have a stone in our shoe, it's a bother until we stop and deal with it. Hopefully, our answers will be like the stone in someone's mind or soul. The Apostle Creed is a good example of our faith summarised. But I don't mean that when you're asked about your faith that you blurt out the Apostle's Creed. No, but it has structure. It actually talks about God the Father and then God the Son, how and why he came to earth, his death, where he is now, and speaks about judgment, the Holy Spirit, about forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Depending on the person you're, who's inquiring about the faith or the situation you're facing, anywhere along that, uh, that point could be a starting point that we could use. <clears throat> In verse 15, notice the two words, always and everyone. What is the scope of Peter's command? Always be prepared to make a defence for anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Always be ready for any question from anyone. That is the duty of every Christian. We must know the word of God and the system of truth that is taught in Holy Scripture. And we must understand the objections that arise to it and seek to respond to them with honesty, faithfulness and biblical clarity. It doesn't mean every Christian should make a study of academic philosophical reasoning, but it does mean that every Christian should be ready to explain what we believe and why we believe. <clears throat> Notice in verse 15, who initiates the exchange that Peter is talking about? The inquirer is asking the Christian. The initiative comes from the non-Christian. So he's actually saying something far more radical than we first might realise. He's saying, I want you to live a provocative life, a life of service and kindness, a life of joy and peace in believing the gospel, a life of zealous for doing good, that turns away from evil, that seeks peace and pursues holiness. I want you to live a life of Christ-likeness so that those that is so different to the world around us that the people you know, people who know you, can't help but ask, what in the world is going on with you? Why are you the way you are? That's what he's saying. The Table Talk magazine in August 2014 devoted a, devoted a whole month to the radical, ordinary Christian life. So I'll just quote from the introduction. <clears throat> the ordinary Christian life is not the, the opposite to a radical Christian life. 
The ordinary Christian life is a radical life. The ordinary Christian life is a life of daily trusting Christ, daily repenting of sins, daily loving Christ, daily taking up our crosses and following Christ, daily loving God and neighbour, daily proclaiming the gospel to ourselves, our families, our friends, our communities. Every Christian is an ordinary Christian and every ordinary Christian is a radical Christian. The ordinary Christian is not a complacent, passionless, nominal or casual Christian. On the contrary, every ordinary Christian, person, child, teenager, husband, wife, single man, single woman, retired man or retired woman, every Christian is radical because every Christian is united to Christ by faith and will bear life-giving fruit. Every Christian is called out of darkness and into light and then called to go back into darkness and shine wherever God places us. And wherever he has placed us, we are called to be radically faithful, radically diligent and radical shining as lights in a dark world. We are called to go wherever he he calls us to go or to stay right where we are as we send and support those whom he has called to go all of this we are to do with the same commitment and passion with which we serve alongside one another in the ordinary way Christ has ordained end of quote so Peter is saying I want your life to be so different to those around us that that it will cause questions from people with whom you have been placed and amongst whom you live and serve. <clears throat> and when we do, we live this different life and God-honouring life, Peter is saying, I want you to be ready to give answers thoughtfully. But the preparation he has in mind just isn't knowing the words to say. It also has to do with the way we say them. It's the part of the obligation resting us in verse 15 and 16. We are to give it offence with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So how we speak in the moment with gentleness and respect and the way we have been living up until the moment, living a life of godliness so that we have a good conscience, those things are vital to being a faithful witness to Jesus. Knowing all the arguments or being someone who just loves a good fight are not qualifications for faithful evangelism. A good evangelist is never obnoxious. We are to be so different to those around us, but we are not to be offensive. The only offence is to be the offence of the cross. Not our manner, not our methods, not our motives. We should be full of gentleness, respect that comes from a good conscience. I said earlier we must support and encourage each other in the church against the growing tirade of critiques, objections, questions and challenges. So how can we do that? In Proverbs 27.17, as iron sharpens iron, so man sharpens the countenance of his friend. We often hear that verse quoted. In my study Bible, it says, this verse could be translated as, let iron sharpen iron, and so let a person sharpen his friend. The idea is that God's people grow from interaction with each other and are helping each other to grow in their faith. We are to have a positive effect on each other's lives and character. We are blessed in this congregation. We have many people with different abilities, particularly in communication. Some are able to start and carry on a worthwhile conversation, sometimes at length. This is good, very good that you can talk at length. 
Some of us have trouble in this area and others, well, sometimes after several hours or even days later, we have an answer to what we should have said to someone's question. That sounds like me. My 2020 hindsight is really improving, which I don't think is a good thing as I get older. <clears throat> when an opportunity or question comes upon us, it is often very sudden and we are taken by surprise. During our conversation at church, it would be good when chatting to each other to ask how different people have strategies to get a few extra seconds to enable our brains to kick in. It's definitely an appropriate time to use an explosive or an arrow prayer to God to ask for help and guidance. <clears throat> but remember in verse 12, we have verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on his people. We are not alone. His ears are open to their prayers all the time. He never sleeps. Peter uses the imagery of ears and eyes to remind us that God knows everything about his people, especially their suffering. He listens to their cries for help. What a comfort and encouragement that is to us. We need to remember it's the Holy Spirit who saves. Our responsibility is to tell people about the gospel. The usual way people is saved is by hearing the word of God or by his people speaking and giving a defence of their faith. Finally, we can't leave this section of 1 Peter without remembering the one who has paid the price for our redemption. Christ suffered for us far more than we could imagine. Christ the righteous one suffered for sinners, us. We need to remember Christ and keep our thoughts focused on him. And verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Amen.